0: Good morning, church family. You're all well. I've prayed for you all this week. Join me in praying again, please. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning, humbled in adoration at who you are, Lord, and what you've done. The beautiful day, the beautiful world that you've created. I was thinking that this morning, and this world is cursed with sin can't imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will look like, Lord, and we long for the day. I pray that you would be glorified in our hearts this morning and mine as I preach and your people as they receive your word. I pray that we would grow to know you more and love you more and be inspired to obey and trust and to keep our eyes on the future hope of heaven. Love you, Lord, and praise you and I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I see um, someone knew that I was preaching this morning so they prepared the Kleenexes. That'll make sense if you're a visitor maybe at the end of this sermon. I'm tend to get a little bit of emotional and that's okay. I want to start with a quick story from my life. In 2014 uh, my wife, Audrey, and I moved from Grand Junction, Colorado to Fort Collins, Colorado. That's where I was born and raised. Some of you know that. Um, we were, at the time, and we still believe, we were obeying a call of God on our lives and my life to get into pastoral ministry. Had recently been radically saved and had this deep desire all of a sudden to, to be in ministry, and an opportunity came up in Fort Collins, my hometown, And so things happened really fast. Audrey and I needed a place to live, and my parents' house became available. They ran a business out of it, so it wasn't available, but then all of a sudden it became available, and this was like, okay, Lord, you're opening doors. We're going to move to Fort Collins. We're going to move in with my parents. And the plan is we'll live with my parents for six months to a year as we get on our feet, and either, at worst, we rent our own place or at best, we buy our first home. We're a newly married couple. We're hoping to start a family soon, and every newly married couple wants to buy their first home. So we moved to Fort Collins. And six months to a year with my parents turned into two or three. Three or four. Four or five. Five or six. Six or seven. Eight. Eight years with my parents. That's been a big part of my story. I'm just paying forward this lesson a lot, so sorry to beat a dead horse if I've talked about this before, but we lived with my parents for eight years. And my par- I always make sure to say my parents are wonderful humans. We love them. Audrey loves them. They have a great relationship as in-laws. It was fun to live with my parents and see my kids get a great relationship with their grandparents. But here's the truth. During those eight years, uh, we battled to walk by faith. I wish I could say we get an A++, that we were just like so satisfied in God, we were so looking forward to the, to the future hope of heaven that we didn't care about living with my parents, but that would be a lie. I don't know what grade I'd give us, probably not something very good. There were seasons where we wanted a house. It was, it was Jesus and heaven plus a house equals happiness and During that time, God wrenched it from our hearts and forced us to open our hands. And there were seasons in that eight years where we said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We are satisfied in you. And so I stand before you guys this morning, having lived in my own house for three months. Three months I have not lived with my parents in the last eight years. Thanks for the applause. Good job, Chad. You're growing up. But after three months of paying a mortgage, I've called my parents back and said, Hey, I don't like this. Can I move back in with you guys? Because this whole mortgage thing is really tough and makes me have to walk by faith in my finances now. And I thought I could escape walking by faith, but I don't seem to be able to. I wonder what you guys are trusting in this morning more than the future hope of dwelling with God in the heavenly city. You may be struggling exactly like Audrey and I did with a desire to own a home. I know there are many young couples in this church, and I prayed for you that the Lord would provide you a house, and until he does, he gives you patience and an ability to walk by faith. You may be praying and struggling that God would allow you to have a spouse or a child. You may really want a promotion at work or to perform well in something coming up. You may want to be recognized by your boss or your co-workers for the job you've been doing. Those are good things, you guys. Those are good gifts from God. They're just not good when we need them as much or more than we want God, and to dwell with Him in the heavenly city. So like Audrey and I, you may be struggling to walk by faith, to be completely satisfied in God, and completely captivated by the coming reality of dwelling with Him in heaven. In the text this morning, we will see more examples of those who walked by faith and the inner motivation of how and why they were able to do so. None of these people we will consider were commended for their perfection. You know that. They were commended for their desire to dwell with God, which expressed itself in faith-filled obedience and trust. They could trust God for the present because they knew they would dwell with God in the future. That's the main point for us this morning. We can trust and obey God in the present because of the guaranteed hope of dwelling with Him in the future. The message this morning will have two points. First, we'll look at, number one, the examples of those with forward-looking faith. And number two, the desire of those with forward-looking faith give you some quick context, remind you of where we were last week. Stephen preached on verses 1 through 7. He reminded us that this is called the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. We saw a few examples of those who walked by faith that started way back at the beginning. The examples were Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And most importantly, I believe, Uh, We saw faith defined and defended. We saw the necessity of faith. It was defined in verse 1. Remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It's not blind faith. It's a certain faith, a certain hope that God is real. He fulfills His promises. We're going to dwell with Him. And then we saw the necessity of faith in verse 6. Remember that one. It says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Really going to be thinking about the reward this morning. So first, let's look at the examples of those with forward-looking faith. We're going to consider all five examples that we heard read in this text, which are scattered throughout the text. So we'll be bouncing around, I'll reference the verses. We're going to look at uh, Abraham, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. First, Abraham. Uh, In verses 8 and 9, it's referring to uh, Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles. I'm not going to read it all. We don't have time for me to read every backstory to these, but I'll try to summarize briefly to remind you of the story. Remember, the author is writing to Jewish Christians. They knew their Old Testaments very well. Some of them probably had it memorized. I know many of you are very familiar with the Old Testament, but you could do with a reminder, and some of you aren't that familiar with these stories. So I think this will be helpful. Abraham, back in Genesis 12, is living in the land of Haran. There's no evidence that he's a God-fearing man. Most scholars agree that he was probably entrenched in pagan culture, like everyone around him. But one day God appears to Abraham and tells him to leave his country and his family and go to the land that the Lord would show him. God says he will make of Abraham and his family a great nation. God would bless him and make his name great so that Abraham and his family would be a blessing. God said that whoever blesses Abraham, God will bless. Whoever curses Abraham, God will dishonor them or curse them. And finally, that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So Abraham hears this from God, and verse 8 of chapter 11 says he obeyed by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to this place. And not only that, it says he obeyed without even knowing where he was going. That's at the end of verse 8. So often it seems in in the stories of the Bible and in my experience, God doesn't reveal our next 20 years or our next 20 steps. He makes clear the next step and we obey in faith that the future is secure because it is. It's hard though. How many of us wish we could meet with God next week for coffee and he would lay out the exact plan for the rest of our lives? That way we wouldn't have to walk by faith. God, it would be a lot easier if I just knew the next steps. Like a lot of them, not just one. It would have been cool if God let Audrey and I know we'd be with my parents for eight years. Really could have prepared our hearts well on the front end of that. Audrey, you're really going to wrestle with a desire to have your own nest. You're going to get frustrated with not knowing if you're allowed to paint or put up pictures or host because we might be being too loud because my parents lived below us. Chad, you're going to wrestle to compare yourself with all the guys around you who have provided a home for their families way earlier than you. You're going to struggle with the, the, the lies from Satan that say, I wish Audrey would have just married some guy who had a better income ability some guy who could provide her a a house, because I can't. But God did a lot in our hearts. We wouldn't change it. We had to walk by faith. I wouldn't change it. He wants to build in us an obedient trust in the present. He usually just gives us the first step, and we got to take that. I I encourage you, if you are certain you know the next step that God is calling you to, but you're scared because you don't know two, three, and four, I encourage you to take the next step. The future's secure, so take the next step. So back to the story in Genesis, it says Abraham obeys. We've read the story. He he leaves his country. And later we find out, though, that he and his wife Sarah don't have any children. So let's consider Sarah together, verses 11 and 12. This is referring back to Genesis 15. In that chapter, God promises Abraham that he would have a child. And not only that, but his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And then a few chapters later, the promise is reiterated by these three angelic dudes. You remember the story? One of them is an angel of the Lord, and they reiterate to Abraham, you're going to have a child. By this time next year, Sarah's going to have your child, and Sarah can hear she's in the tent, and she laughs, right? And, And the scene makes you think she laughs pretty disrespectfully, unbelievingly, irreverently. She's 89 years old, and ladies, don't throw rocks at me she refers to herself as worn out. Don't hate the messenger. She says that I'm worn out. I'm not going to have a baby. So you know the story. Abraham and Sarah, they try to help God fulfill his promise, or they get impatient, whatever it is, by having Abraham sleep with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And Hagar gets pregnant, and she does have a son, and they name him Ishmael, but it's not God's way. And he tells them again, they will have a son. Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. It's a son of promise. You're going to do it my way, not yours. And in Genesis chapter 21, their son is born. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And what do they name him? Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? Laughter. What a beautiful picture. Her son's name is a perpetual reminder of the faithfulness of God. God made a promise that she would have a son and she basically laughed in his face. But the day he was born, she certainly laughed with joy. She now knew that with God, all things were possible. God had redeemed her disrespectful and unbelieving laughter into a worshipful and trusting laughter. And because of God's promise, she received power to conceive a baby even though she was old. And so, from her and Abraham, the text says, and guys, here's where I get to rag on you. It says, the text says, Abraham was as good as dead. She was worn out. He's as good as dead. And yet, from them, they had descendants as many as the stars of heaven or the grains of sand on the seashore. We saw that in verse 12. But there's another part of Abraham's story that seemingly almost prevented. The promise of God, the innumerable children, and that's namely the near death of Isaac. We see this in verses 17 through 19. In Genesis 22, Abraham is tested by God. Would Abraham really trust God? Would he obey even amidst a very confusing and scary command? In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, go up a mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Kill your son. Most likely slit his throat, put him on an altar, offer him as a burnt offering. I, I was struggled to get through this part because I have a son. and I love my son. So so Abraham makes preparations. He takes Isaac. They're going up the mountain. At one point, Isaac says, Dad, where's the lamb? You know, the really important thing for this sacrifice. And Abraham forward-looking faith, he says, don't worry, God will provide a lamb for himself. So Abraham builds an altar, and at this point, I don't know, maybe they had a conversation. He binds his son, he puts him on an altar, he has a knife over him or right next to his neck, and he's about to go through with it, and God stops him and says, don't do anything, don't touch the boy, I now know you've passed the test. You're willing to obey even the scary and confusing commands. Look over there. There's a ram caught in a bush by its horns. Sacrifice that. Can you imagine the relief? And verses 17 through 19 remind us of this story. He, Abraham was tested by God. And we're reminded in, that, in the text that Ab- Abraham had received promises concerning his son, and family that would come after his son. God had said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author of Hebrews reminds that he had this promise, the son of promise. Through him, your offspring is going to be named. This must have been a confusing and terrifying command. John Owen says this about this reality. Sometimes, Through God's providence, there may appear to be inconsistency between God's commands and his promises. Nothing but faith bowing the soul to divine sovereignty can reconcile this. And Abraham bowed his soul and trusted God. It seems that he thought, well, if I go through with this, God will raise Isaac back from the dead. Which verse nineteen says, and then it says, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had certainly committed the deed in his mind, will, and emotions. Think about that—that that long walk up the mountain. He's visualizing. Okay, how am I going to do this? Am I, I am I going to turn away? Am I gonna? Am I gonna have a talk with him and tell him how much I love him and tell him this isn't coming from me. This is from God. I mean, he, he's done the deed in his mind, and his heart. But he trusted God. He trusted God in the present because he was certain of his future. So these next three examples are short and sweet, one verse each. But there's something to learn from all three of these. So first we look at Isaac, verse 20. It says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. We read of that in Genesis 27. Isaac blesses his sons, Jacob and Esau. If you've read the story, you know that Jacob steals the blessing from his older brother, Esau. He deceives his dad and his brother. And yet, and Isaac didn't know about this, but Isaac still trusted God for the future of his sons. He knew that God would fulfill his promise. It all worked out with Jacob and Esau. They both did well. There's a cool reconciliation scene. But Isaac trusted God for the future of his sons. Next, verse 21, is Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. We read that in Genesis 48. Jacob blesses his grandsons as if they're his own sons. And he bows in worship. He trusted God for the future of his family, and it caused worship. I hope you guys have experienced that. I have. Doesn't trusting God for the future bring such worship in the present when everything around you is scary and terrifying? You got a lost a job. You got a pay cut. You got a scary diagnosis or someone in your family got a scary diagnosis and you remember the future is secure and such worship in the present. when You get your mind and eyes off of all this and you look there. The final example is Joseph. Verse 22, By faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That comes from Genesis 50. Joseph is dying, and he tells his brothers about God's future promise to save Israel out of Egypt. God told the the forefathers, you're going to be in Egypt for a long time, but I'm going to bring you out with many possessions. And also Joseph tells them, when God does this, take my bones with you as a reminder of his family to trust God. Remember brother Joseph, uncle Joseph, grandpa Joseph. These are his bones and we're going to take them out with us when God takes us out. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, Sarah, they all trusted God's promises and therefore they trusted God for the future. Their faith in God enabled them to make prophetic benedictions to their families and we are called to imitate their faith to not shrink back and be destroyed but to be those who have faith and preserve their souls in all these examples the unifying characteristic in each of their lives is that their actions their trust their obedience came from their faith their faith in God it's not faith in faith it's not faith in their own actions or power It's faith in El Shaddai, God Almighty. They believed God would fulfill His promises. And their external actions proved their faith. What we believe dictates how we live. And what was the motivation for these Old Testament saints we've read about? What was going on in their hearts and minds as they walked by faith? And is it the same for us as followers of Jesus? And that brings us to point two. We'll consider verse 10 and verses 13 through 16. I believe this is the main point of the text. It pulls back the curtain and shows us heart motivations and beliefs of these Old Testament characters and should be a description of the hearts of all of us who follow Jesus. Point number two, the desire of those with forward-looking faith. There are three points here. Number one, faith acknowledges... That the full and final promises of God aren't for the here and now, but for the there and later. Look at verse 13, the first half. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham and Sarah had received the promised son, but there was so much more they hadn't received. And even if they had, they were ultimately looking to something greater. How many times throughout this series in Hebrews have we sang the song, Something Greater? That's why this whole book is that something greater. Jesus is better. Better than anything. Better than the Old Testament way. The Old Testament pointed to Him. He's the something better, the something greater. Friends, God gives us many good gifts in this life and many promises. But the best gifts and promises are the ones we greet from afar that we haven't fully and completely received yet. We'll say more about that in a moment. That's number one. Number two, faith acknowledges it is a sojourner on the earth. Second half of verse 13 through 15 having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. These Old Testament saints knew that they were strangers, exiles, sojourners, and not chiefly because they weren't living in their homeland. Verse 15 says that, if Abraham was feeling like a stranger and an exile because he wasn't in his homeland, he could have gone back to Haran, but even there in his homeland, he wouldn't have been home. He was seeking his heavenly homeland, and so are we. Until we are there, we are sojourners, strangers, exiles, pilgrims. The theme is picked up all over Scripture, it's everywhere. Listen to King David in, in Psalm thirty-nine, twelve. He says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest, like all my fathers. About the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter two, eleven, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is such a good reminder for us, isn't it? Believers in every culture and at all times have needed this reminder. We who live in America in 2022 are no different. We don't belong here. We have a pretty bad case of affluenza. I don't do discomfort very well, and I doubt you do either. We won't find the comfort or the joys we long for here. And like all the believers who have gone before us, we won't find the culture warmly embracing us. We're strangers. We're exiles, and that's a great place to be. Wouldn't you rather be there than anywhere else? Because why? Number three, faith seeks its heavenly homeland. Verses 10 and 16. In verse 10, we see that Abraham wasn't ultimately hoping in any earthly fulfillment of the promises of God. He was content to live in tents, because he knew no matter where he lived on earth, it would be a transient dwelling. 709 Mount Evans Avenue, Severance, Colorado, with a concrete foundation, is a transient dwelling, and so is yours. He looked forward to dwelling with God in the heavenly city, the city that has permanent foundations. The city that God has not only designed, but he's built and building with his own hands. Makes me think of John 14, one of my favorite chapters. Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. I have wept reading that chapter. Jesus, when arguing with the Pharisees about who he is, says this about Abraham. John 8:56. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham looked forward to the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom that he would usher in. And Abraham wasn't the only one who longed to live in this city. All the other Old Testament saints mentioned in the Hall of Faith, and even those not mentioned, and even us, desire a better country. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Those who walk by faith desire a better country. So often we talk about faith as if it's only, mainly a decision of the will. Yes, we must decide to follow Jesus. But looking at a decision isn't the best assurance that one is a Christian. This was me for 26 years of my life. I've said that before. I'm sorry to say it again. I thought I made a decision, maybe when I was a kid, and then definitely I thought when I was 17, I made a decision. Okay, I'm pretty sure there's a God. I made this intellectual assent, and we could argue after this this week over coffee. I don't think I was saved, because that decision didn't come with any desires. And the author of Hebrews has been talking about this throughout the warning passages, the spurious Christians, the nominal Christians, the ones who, who maybe have made an intellectual decision but haven't been born again and have no desires in their hearts. And that didn't happen with me until I was 26, when I believe I was, a heart of stone was removed from me and I was given a heart of flesh and I wanted God. And I haven't looked back. And those of you that are in Christ, you agree. But I ask you still, Do you desire God? Do you long to be with Him and know Him and love Him and tell others about Him? Can you truly say with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do you want God more than anything else in your life? Do you long for your heavenly home? If that's you, then God's not ashamed to be called your God for He has prepared for you a city. If you long for God, then God, hyperbolically, is not ashamed to be called your God. We could say off other verses like John 3.16, He loves being called your God. He has made a place in His city for you. And friends, our faith, our obedience and trust, our access into the heavenly city are only possible because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from His perfect life, His wrath-bearing death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, we would have all been left in our sins without faith, without access to the heavenly city, without hope. It's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. If you have believed the gospel, believe it again this morning. It wasn't just something you did. It wasn't just something I did when I was 26. It's something I try to do every day. It's something we, as preachers of this church, want to do every Sunday. You're going to get the gospel every Sunday because the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. And you, Christian, need to believe it this morning. Your sins have been forgiven. You're going to heaven. And if you're in here and you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, you, you come here, this is your church home, but you're not a Christian, maybe you made a decision, but you don't have desires in your heart, call out to God God, save me, forgive my sins, give me desires to know you, and to love you. When, when God causes a person to be born again, it comes with desires. I've said that. I have had an insatiable desire to read this book since I got saved. If you find you could care less about this book, but you made a decision, you probably need to cry out to God this morning. I love you enough to make you question your faith, but sometimes we go through dry seasons. I've been through them. I don't Super desire this. So a good place to start is, God, I I don't really feel like I want you, but I want to want you. So help me in that. Remember, it's not about your performance. It's about Jesus' performance for you. He died on the cross for you. And you seek to know and love God because of what he's done for you. The life of faith is a battle, you guys. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's hard. And I ask you, are you placing ultimate joy in earthly things? Are you seeking comfort in things that can't provide it? I'm going to say it again. Longing for the great gifts of God is not sinful. It's not wrong to want a house or a spouse or a child or a promotion or a performance in some upcoming thing. Pray for those things. I've been praying those for some people in this body and in my community group but hold on to them with open hands. Trust in the goodness and the sovereign plan of God. Remember that only, only, only in His presence there will be full and forever joy. So many of the longings we feel here is because we want to be there, and we try to fill it with things, houses and spouses and kids and promotions. Not bad things, but we're still going to be empty. I'm still walking by faith, even though the Lord provided this house that we wanted so badly for eight years and so are you, whatever your battle is. If you are holding on with white knuckles to one of the good gifts God might give, place your heart and your eyes back on your heavenly home and open up your hands. That home, that's been purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ beckons a person, leave the world, begin a pilgrimage towards heaven. I was reading this week, I came upon this quote and couldn't find a better way to land the plane. So I leave you with this. A life of faith is a life that builds an ark in the desert. It's a life that leaves the securities and comforts of home behind. It's a life that builds a crib when you're 90 years old. The life that lifts a knife over its most treasured earthly possession. We can live the life of faith. We can trust and obey God now because through Christ, we're going to dwell with Him in the future. May He continue to do that in us, His church. Pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You. We praise You for sending Your Son to make a way for us back to our heavenly home. Pray, Lord, that you would just continue to enable us by your Holy Spirit to walk by faith, to be satisfied in you, to hold on to the the gifts you give with open hands. Do that work in us, Lord, that only you can do. Help us be people who are radically trusting Faithful and obedient, Lord, use this church as a witness to our unbelieving friends and family, that we're willing to do crazy things, humanly impossible things, because with you all things are possible. Fill your promises, and you are worthy to be praised and trusted. Love you, Lord. Pray this in the name of Jesus.